Hi, listeners. As you may have noticed in the title, this is episode one of our international student mini series. This series has three episodes offering three different perspectives. In episode one, we interview Chie Kinjo, who has been working with international students for over a decade. In episode two, Nancy Barajas, an ex-international student now working in post-secondary education. Last, in episode three, we interview Edna Stobshinsky, a current international student and the vice president of the Lethbridge College Students Association. We intended for the series to provide insight and strategies to help educators support international students. However, our guests ended up having a lot to say to students as well. So we hope both students and educators, both international and domestic, can find inspiration and connection in the stories and ideas to come. This is the Teaching and Learning Podcast from the Centre for Teaching, Learning and Innovation at Lethbridge College in Southern Alberta, Canada. Located on the traditional lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy, it is the intent of our college community to honour the land from a place of connection and provide an avenue for us all to come together in a holistic way to share stories and learn from each other. Tune in, hit play and get inspired as guests share their stories and ideas on the dynamic, ever-changing landscape of education, teaching and learning. I am Donna McLaughlin, a learning experience designer in the Centre for Teaching, Learning and Innovation at Lethbridge College, and I am the host of the Teaching and Learning Podcast. Welcome to Episode 8 of the Learning Innovation Podcast. Our guest today is Chie Kinjo, and we'll be discussing intercultural communication and issues unique to international students. Hi, Chie. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Donna. Thank you for having me. I understand you are the coordinator for International Student Services at Lethbridge College, and that's quite a mouthful. Can you talk about what you do in that role? Uh, Sure. So uh, my main role for international students is to provide them non-academic support uh, while they're studying with us um, in Lethbridge. Most of the international students will know me because I'm the one that uh, is in contact with them when they Um, after they've received their offer of admission. So I provide communication with them on what they need to do to prepare to move here. Um, And I also organize a lot of the events. So uh, their orientation, their um, information sessions, social events to help them make new friends and learn more about Lethbridge. Um, So that's mostly what I do. Um, I also hear um, a lot of international students do contact me for resources and support. So for example, uh, they want to know how to apply to get their Alberta healthcare number. Uh, They are homesick a little bit. They want to talk in their mother tongue. Uh, They want to just be around people that kind of have the same culture as them um, and get them in contact with uh, community support or um, how to change their driver's license over. I also uh, am in charge of the, our exchange programs at the college. Uh, so we do have four partner schools, uh, two in France, one in Spurg, uh, 
sorry, Korea and one in Finland. Um, and that's open to both our domestic and international students if they can get a visa um, to those countries. Um, so I help coordinate that. So any students uh, that are interested, they usually reach out to myself or um, I get referred to by an advisor. And so I help uh, help them figure out which school they wanna go to um, and then help coordinate um, the visas and um, you know residents and all that fun stuff um, to move while they do in a semester abroad. Um, and then I also help with recruitment. Mm -hmm. That's a really broad range of tasks that you do in that position. Yeah, really busy. <laughs> so how did you end up uh, coming to Lethbridge College and, and uh, finding yourself in this position? It goes a little bit <laughs> further back. Um, when I was in university, my major was uh, in education and my minor was Japanese as a second language. And one of my Japanese professors actually reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to um, join the JET program or apply for the JET program, which is a program that's run by the Ministry of Education in Japan. And it's for university graduates all over the world. And it's for them to come and live and work in Japan. Um, there's two different jobs. There's one um, to be an assistant language teacher, um, so to teach English, and there's another one to be a coordinator of international relations. Um, so because I was, I had a teaching background, I was studying to be a teacher, um, I signed up to be an ALT, and thankfully I got accepted. Um, and um, I actually requested to be uh, placed in Okinawa, Japan, and that's where my parents are from. They immigrated from there um, to Canada in the 70s. And luckily, I was able to be placed in my dad's hometown. So, um, yeah, there was a little bit of luck there. Um, were you able to um, get in contact with some relatives in that town while you were there? Yeah, so... Our family is quite close knit compared, considering that there's so much distance between us. Um, so uh, instead, growing up, instead of going to Disneyland or Disney World, uh, we went to Japan to visit our family. Um, and so, yeah, it was really easy for me to uh, move there and kind of settle down because I already had that familial support. And that's one of the reasons why I requested to be there because I knew um, is quite a big step. And I was quite the introvert back then and not as independent as I should be. So it was nice to have that support. So if I had issues, I could always just call my aunt or uncle and they'd come rescue me. Yeah. So after the JET program, um, which I did for five years, I taught at a, I taught, I had got a private contract for three years at a public school there. And then I ended up as a junior high teacher at a English immersion international school. So I taught there for four years um, and through working through the high schools and then at that um, junior high, I um, actually coordinated a lot of international exchanges um, with students in Okinawa and mainly Hawaii and Australia and Singapore. Um, and I kind of became the liaison for that, for a lot of that, for the Board of Education and for my um, international school. And so I got a lot of experience. So um, just because of the Japanese work culture and how much I integrated into Japanese culture and life, um, I actually burnt out as a teacher um, and I decided it was time to go home. 
Um, so after 12 years, I decided to move back to Lethbridge. Um, and when I was thinking about my career after teaching, um, I knew that I still wanted to stay in education and kind of continue that role as a liaison or coordinator with study abroad. And so I looked into a couple of jobs, but eventually um, I kind of knew I wanted to help support the international students in Lethbridge because I knew there was a huge, a big population that come to the college and to the university here. And I know that there's a couple ESL schools because my cousins actually came over and attended those from Japan. And so I kind of wanted to do that. But in the meantime, I decided to upgrade. So I was actually going to the university to get my management degree. But in the middle of my third semester, the college posted a position to be for an international student support coordinator. And I felt like it was fate. And so I applied and I got it. Um, I and it was meant to be. Yeah, I immediately withdrew from all my accounting classes and business classes I was taking. And yeah, I was so excited. And all my friends and family, they're like, wow, it was like meant to be for you to be at this job. Yeah. Can you talk about how COVID has affected your role? Oh, how hasn't it not affected my role should be the question. Um, I think COVID might have had the biggest impact on the international students. You know, for the students that are already here, international students, it kind of affected whether or not they could go home. Um, and they had to make that decision. Should they go home to their home country and be with their family? Or should they just stay here and, you know, finish their program? And for, at the beginning of COVID, uh, you know, there was that implication that it, if they did go home, it could affect their future immigration plans. Um, thankfully, Immigration um, Canada, so the IRCC was able to provide updates and flex more flexibility. Um, and then it was for our new students, you know, that had applied and got accepted for the our um, upcoming intakes that, you know, whether or not they could travel here. And then the study permit process was delayed or stopped completely. And so they weren't able to get their study permits. And then if they were able to travel, would they meet the eligibility requirements and quarantine? So yeah, there's been, a lot, it's been a lot, that's for sure. <laughs> and it's really still ongoing, isn't it? Because there's continuously changes coming. Yeah. So um, my last couple of weeks have been extremely busy trying to keep up with the new updates that, you know, the government ha has released with the tra new travel measures and getting that information out. Um, thankfully, they've coordinated well within their departments. So um, immigration has updated um, kind of the requirements and eligibility for um, other things. So yeah, it's, it's been nice, but also like getting all of that set up and, you know, making all that information digestible and easy to access for their international students. Um, it's, yeah, it's been a task, that's for sure. <laughs> and what about international communication? Are there things that you gained from your experience living and working in Japan that um, have given you, you know, enhanced your skills within international communication? Um, yeah, so on the JET program and at my international school, the JET program has participants from all over the world. So I've, you know, met people from Turkey and Kenya, Australia, New Zealand, uh, the Ukraine, um, Kazakhstan, you know, 
Bolivia, Peru, so all over the world. And, you know, we all speak English, but we don't speak the same English, um, which is probably the biggest kind of shock that comes. Um, you know, most of North American, we kind of follow American English and then Canadians to some extent, British English, but there's also like Japanese English, which we've discovered there, which is such a thing in Japan, um, you know, and like Singaporeans have a different English, New Zealanders have a different English from Australians, even though they're so close. And even for us, like Canadians in Alberta have a different, you know, dialect to people that are out in Halifax say, you know, so um, that realization that like, just because we speak the lang language doesn't mean we like complete that doesn't make it that we all completely understand each other. Um, so that was one of the big communication thing. Um, and then with COVID, a lot of times it's not face to face. So even through Zoom um, and Teams and video chats, it's still kind of hard to gauge um, what the person means and what their tone is especially if it's through email and then body language is like a lot of times how we pick up on certain communication cues. And so, you know, because of COVID that is gone. And so it's been really hard. So especially through email communication, it's, you have to be really careful and like, what is the student asking? Like, is it, is it urgent for them? Um, yeah, or is there an underlying thing? And if we talked face to face, you could usually figure it out, you know, pick up on the nonverbal cues. When we're talking about intercultural communication, is there any advice that you would give to instructors or others who are working with international students? Mm, yeah, it's probably just to kind of have an open mind and just be open to and more um, receptive. Um, to what the international students are asking. Um, and also to keep in mind that, you know, their English isn't going to be the same as yours. They're asking something and, and it might not come across, but to the, you know, the international student, what they're asking is, you know, makes sense. Um, and it's just kind of just being open and, you know, willing to try and work with the student to figure out exactly what they're asking um, if they don't understand. Um, as well. I think that's the biggest thing. Um, and also to, to realize that our academic culture that we have in our classroom culture in Canada is not necessarily the same um, as the one that the international student is used to. So that was one of the biggest things that I had to deal with when I was teaching in Japan is Japanese teaching is very, in, in a lot of East Asian countries, it's very teacher-centered. Teacher stands at the front, what the teacher says goes, um, you know, you're supposed to listen. Um, whereas here it's more student centered, you know, it's okay to ask questions and interrupt the teacher, um, you know, and have, um, good discussions, you know, within your class and your, um, teachers. Um, and so that's a completely different thing that that's also added to this international students, um, you know, load of, you know, when they come here. So it's not just that they're coming here to study. Um, there's also that academic, new academic culture that they're navigating. And I, and I don't think that's something that's very, that a lot of um, people realize, um, you know, because it's so hidden and it's just so integrated into our own, you know, it's just normal for us. 
It's not just about the language. Mm -hmm. There's there's a culture, you know, the classroom rules and just the unwritten rules that, you know, we all it's culture is often, you know, used as like this, the comparison is like an iceberg. And so, you know, there's, you only see the very tip of the iceberg, but there's so much more underneath that's like unwritten and spoken that's unseen that kind of that, you know, that the culture is based on. And so academic culture is probably, you know, underwater and it's not unseen. So it's not as noticeable. That's a really great uh, point. I'm taking a course right now for as part of my master's. And one of the big take homes for me was that all education is culture-based and you're right. We don't tend to think about that at first until you've had an opportunity, you know, like you have to experience education in another culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's something like that I had to, like, we all had to learn as JET program participants and the international teachers at my, um, that international school, like the foreign teachers, you know, like we all taught differently too, like how we teach math. I know the math teachers have had heated discussions at my old school about what the right way to teach multiplication tables was because we all learned it differently, right? So, and there's so many different methods. So yeah, and that was like, that made us more aware. And so one of the big components that we taught at my old school is critical thinking, but then it ended up, the teachers had actually developed inadvertently developed our skills too because we had to learn that and like intercultural communication because just to work with our colleagues you know and the same teachers in our same grade level or subject level we had to develop those skills. I understand that international students coming to Canada are required to have a two-week quarantine. Mm -hmm. What is your role in supporting them through that? Uh, so my role is um, the college is actually issuing letters of support for those international students that um, do want to travel to Canada so that they have um, the experience of living here. And then also um, if they have an on-campus class that they have to attend, because we do have students, you know, that are in like the massage program and practical nursing and some of our trade programs, um, you know, and they, they want to come here and they you know, to do their on-campus requirements. Um, so we are supporting them through the letters of support. So um, I'm the one that is coordinating all of that. And I work with our international admissions officers and um, we ask the students to submit their quarantine plans. And then once, and we make sure that they have all the information that they need before they arrive here. Um, and then once they arrive here, um, what uh, myself and I've kind of recruited our international recruiter as well to help out. Um, but we do check in on the students for the 12, for um, the 14 days that they are in quarantine once they arrive. Um, so normally we just do email and we just ask them questions um, and then provide resources on jet lag, um, you know, if they need wellness support or mental health support, because it is quite hard. Um, you know, for a lot of the newer new students, it's the first time they're away from their families and they're away from home and they have to deal with this pandemic on top of that. And they're stuck in a hotel room for 14 days by themselves. Then they can't go outside. Um, so we do provide that check-in just to make sure that they're doing okay. And if they have any questions um, and then at the end, I do ask them like if they need resources and help, like where to get a social insurance number, or like, this is what you need to do to go and get your Alberta healthcare if they're in Alberta um, quarantining. Um, and then we do have, um, 
we do try to do a video check-in once or twice um, while they're here, um, just to make sure that they're okay and see their face. And by the time we get to those video check-ins, they're usually so happy to talk to someone that's not part of probably their family or their instructor. So I bet they're very happy to talk to you. Yeah, we have, we've had some good chats. They're normally scheduled for 15 minutes, but I, I've had like an hour chat with a student, um, which is nice. Um, so it's been nice. Like um, the one of the plus sides of COVID and the quarantine is that I've been able to make more one-on-one uh, -on -one connections with the students. And so they actually get to put a face to the, to the name of all the emails that I sent out. They actually get to meet me and talk to me directly. Um, and then I get to meet some of the students, which is really nice. That was something that was lacking before COVID hit that I was, that was a thing that I was struggling with personally at my job is to figure out a way to connect with the international students. And now I can. That must be really rewarding to have those conversations with them. Yeah, it's been fun. Um, and Obi, our recruiter, he's had some pretty good conversations too. Like, um, you know, he immigrated to Canada as well. And there's some students that, you know, speak his language, his home, his uh, first language. And so he's been able to talk to them and they get really excited because, you know, it's someone that speaks my language. So um, yeah. And with like the female students, we've had some good connections um, as well. We've gotten on to some very interesting topics and fun topics, but yeah, it's been fun. So now, um, you know, they tell me that they look forward to when they can come on campus and stop by my office and come see me and hang out. So yeah, it's been really good. And there's some other supports you provide as well. Um, some kind of a, a, a kit, I understand. Yeah. So for the students who are quarantining in Lethbridge, um, unfortunately, we can't um, deliver them to students that aren't in Lethbridge just of the cost and probably the time it takes to post them. Um, but for the students in Lethbridge, we do, we do put together a quarantine kit. Um, that we drop off. Um, we try to drop them off within the first week of their arrival and they just have some swag, Lethbridge swag, so a shirt and some a mug and a stress ball. Um, there's some good Canadian snacks like uh, coffee crisps and Kit Kats and um, juice boxes um, and you know, like oatmeal, some instant soup. Um, and then we also put some fun stuff in. So uh, like a puzzle book like a Sudoku or word find coloring pages and coloring pencils and like play-doh or a little Jenga um so yeah we put these little kits together and we make sure they deliver them and it, from the response I get I the students are quite thankful um to receive these kits um it gives them something to do besides studying um that's for sure and kind of waste time so yeah and if you're going to be in quarantine you got to have the snacks yeah, of course. It is what a good way to introduce Canadian snacks to international students. So, yeah. Can you talk about um, some of the challenges that international students face that um, domestic students don't face or, or might not even be aware of? Uh, sure. Um, I'm not sure if a lot of uh, people that aren't, um, you know, in the have direct uh, a working relationship with international students or have um, or have like a social relationship with them. Um, it's quite a process to even get to study at Lethbridge College, the, you know, to apply, to figure out what country you want to go to, what program you want to do. 
um, whittling that down and then just trying to navigate a completely different application process to come to Canada. And then once they get accepted, they have to apply for a study permit. And that takes two or three months, you know, just to gather everything that you need for one, because sometimes you need to go um, get a medical check done. Um, you have to have enough money, make sure you have enough money and financial support to even come here. Um, so that's a big thing. Um, they do pay quite a higher tuition than the domestic students. And so that's the, the other aspect that I don't think a lot of people realize. And then for many of our international students, um, they're kind of the, the person that's the foot into Canada and immigrating to Canada. Um, and so a lot of international students, their families will pool money and support them financially so that they can get an education in Canada. Um, and perhaps, you know, after they graduate, find a good job and then apply for permanent residency. And then after that, they can invite the rest of their family over to come live here. And so there is, I think for some of the, or for, you know, a big chunk of our student population, there is that pressure, you know, to do well in school and be able to, you know, get permanent residency here so that they can help their families or start a better life for themselves. So there is that pressure as well. And then, you know, with COVID, all the travel restrictions and the extra costs of that. Um, and then the hidden one is something that probably even the international students don't realize that they have is culture shock. Um, unless you're aware of it and you're introduced to it, um, you might not even be aware. Um, and it, culture shock takes a long time to get through and sometimes it never goes away. Um, so I lived in Japan for 12 years and I've, you know, I've done um, information sessions where I presented about culture shock to new JET participants that came after me. Um, and even then it's like, oh, I'm going through culture shock now because um, it kind of ebbs and flows. It's, we call it like a wave. So, you know, there's ups and downs to it. And I don't think a lot of people realize. And then you could get culture shock just after them because like when you talk to an international student, because of your interaction, you're meeting someone in a, from a different culture. And so that might be something that might affects you inadvertently. I still get called reverse culture shock. I still get it um, after moving back to Canada because um, I do, when I'm on the phone, I still bow um, when I hang up or greet people because <laughs> um, that's been so ingrained in me working and living in Japan. Um, and then sometimes, you know, service is amazing in Japan. So um, there's little buttons on your table when you go to a restaurant and you push it and a waiter will come over right away. Whereas here, you just have to wait or try and, you know, find a way to call your server over nicely. Um, so I, and then sometimes I get the, oh, you know, why can't Canada have this? Japan is so much, you know, better at service and all that kind of things. So yeah, it's culture shock is something that, um, I don't think there's awareness on both sides, um, but it is this something that they do go through. So when I do interact with international students, you know, sometimes they come at me very frustrated and it's not that they're frustrated at me or the situation. They're just frustrated. They're in that frustration period of their culture shock. And so trying to figure out if, 
or perhaps it's both. They're frustrated at the situation, but also on top of that, they're in that frustrated part of their culture shock experience. So yeah, that's something. That's, that's another really important thing for instructors and others to be aware of that their students may well be in culture shock and you can be told about culture shock, but until you've actually experienced it, you don't really know what it's like. I know for myself, I, when I was young, I went on an exchange and so I, I experienced it both going to the other country and then coming back and, and uh, yeah, you're not always, you know, you can't almost prepare for it. Yeah. And it, it, culture shock doesn't really come until like after two or three months, like going and traveling abroad for, you know, two, it's actually when you like, when you live and you're integrated into the community and the culture where it typically shows up. Um, because when you're first, when you first go to a different country, everything's great. Oh my gosh, this is so brand new and sparkly and wonderful. And then after, you know, three or four months, it's, it's a different timeline for everyone. But then after that shiny sparkly period, there's a dip where, you know, and I, I went through it and all my friends on the jet program went through it where it's like, well, Canada does this better. This is way better in Canada. Why don't they do it this way? Like Japan is so inefficient and this is such a terrible way to do things. And there's that period of like two or three months, like it, you know, it depends. And then you go back and then there's the status quo and then there's little, um, you know, ebbs and flows afterwards. So yeah, it's, it, it takes time and it takes pretty good awareness and experience like you have to it's kind of something you have to go to through you know on your own to really understand on the flip side of that are there any blind spots that you would say you know Albertans or Canadians have I think in overall the impression I got working and with the international students and even working abroad as a Canadian is you know, how nice we are, that stereotype, which is great to have. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of our international students choose Canada um, to come and study is because we're so welcoming and it's, um, you know, like we're more ready to accept immigrants and international students. Um, but there is, you know, we do want them to kind of adapt to our culture and our way of life. And, you know, in some instances quite quickly, and that's not something that can just happen in within a week or two, like after they settle down and get their apartment set up and they get their healthcare set up. It just doesn't happen just, you know, after a month, it takes a really long time to integrate into a community and, and build your own kind of family and, you know, support circle of support. Yeah. So it can be a little bit challenging mm -hmm. to integrate into the community. Yeah. I understand that there's uh, quite an interesting project that you've been part of. Um, it's a game of some sort, uh, from what I've understand. Can you describe this more, or what the purpose of the project is? Um, and it's not ready yet, from what I understand, but it's something very exciting coming on the horizon. Sure. Uh, so I'm a part of a project called One World. Uh, where um, we're working with CTLI and with wellness services. And um, what it is, is um, we actually asked some of the international students that are in our student crew that work, ex um, that are in Sphere. Um, and we asked them kind of what the resources they wanted or what they wanted to, you know, have to build on and draw attention to 
um, as a college, like for domestic students and faculty and staff that work here. And one of the things was um, that came up a lot was intercultural understanding and um, for, you know, like other non-international students to kind of understand um, and be more accepting and aware of the cultural differences and you know similarities even. Um, and so we took their ideas and um, we developed that idea into a, kind of a role-playing game um, where the player kind of goes through different activities and different tasks um, where they build up their intercultural understanding skills. Um, and so it's, it's the very basic, you know, that's the start, but you know, that's where it, you know, most people need is a, it's the start that they need. So um, yeah, we're developing a game. It's still in the early developing stages. Um, we finished a script um, and our Carrie Stoltz, our wonderful game developer is currently building the game, um, but we're really excited with what Carrie's been building and um, kind of all the activities and tasks that we've implemented into the game. Will it be a simulation? Mm -hmm. It's like a role-playing game. So we've kind of based it on the old school Nintendo games, like the old school Legend of Zelda kind of 8-bit kind of, you know, where you walk around town and talk to people and interact, um, that kind of game. So yeah, and like there's choices and depending on the choices you make, um, you it kind of builds your intercultural understanding, your intercultural profile. Yeah. Will both international students and domestic students be able to participate in the game? Yes, so we're hoping that um, it will be something that our instructors and faculty at the college can implement into their courses, um, into their classes. So it could be a unit of study for um, the students and also for the faculty to do. And um, it actually, the game is set up so that it can be open to anyone, not just students, um, you know, staff, faculty, um, maybe we can market it to a larger audience as well. But that's, yeah, we thought that a game might be a, a more interesting way to learn those skills than rather than just reading, you know, um, like academic articles about it. So it's just actually go through it and experience it, you know, which we talked about during, you know, with culture shock is just to kind of experience actually being in a different culture that you don't, you don't really know of. So yeah, we've created a culture basically in the game and you just kind of have to navigate, um, you know, interacting with that culture. That sounds really exciting and fun. And I'm happy to hear that staff can participate as well, mm -hmm. because I think that's something I would like to try out as well. Um, and will there be uh, ties to the Lethbridge College student core competencies with the game? Yes, I think it's the global citizenship competency that um, Ashley, um, one of our project members is working very hard to make sure that it matches with that core competency. And so when those rolled out, we were quite excited because our game would fit into that core competency. So yes, it will be something that students can use to um, build that and get a badge. So students can not only have fun playing that game, but they can also earn a badge for their participation. Yes, and that's what we're hoping for. Like if a faculty, if faculty can implement it into their courses, then they can link it up to a core competency um, and to be able to meet that requirement to get that badge for that global citizenship competency.
do you have a rough timeline for when you expect the game to be ready? Uh, I don't know if you can make that commitment, but <laughs> uh, I can't make that commitment. I'm not sure. Um, I helped. I was on the script developing side, and so um, you know, Carrie's kind of the guru of game development. So whenever um, we're, we're kind of on her timeline and we're giving her as much because she's learning new programming skills and working with a couple new things. So, yeah, but we're hoping this year. Mm-hmm. We won't right. put any pressure on yeah. her then. <laughs> Let's not put any pressure on Carrie. Okay. What advice do you have for current and future international students? Um, to come to Lethbridge College, definitely to do their post-secondary education. Um, and then once they get here, um, it's much colder and windier than you think it is. Uh, so pack warm clothes, extra socks. Um, and, and that's probably advice for all students yeah, coming to Lethbridge. Yeah. I don't think they're aware of how windy we are. Um, so yeah, that also, um, you know, Lethbridge is a great, it's a, it's a city, but it has a small town feel, which is kind of nice. It's, you know, we're quite safe. Um, and so there is that, um, and just to be open to try and build, um, you know, relationships and connections with, um, people that maybe aren't from your own culture or that don't share the same language as you. Um, I do notice that a lot of our international students kind of clump together um, in countries or culture, um, which is fine, which is great. And I understand why they do that because it's comfort for them, right? Especially because they're homesick. But, you know, to reach out to students and um, to their domestic students um, that are, you know, the Canadian students that are there and, you know, and see what, what they're interested in and try to learn and come to our events. Like we, we hold events, um, so that we can provide those connections. So, and to be involved at the college, not just with like the events that we put on, but you know, the LCSA, they do a lot of great events and it's a great way to learn about Canadian culture, you know, and like what Canadian college life is. Cause it's not like it is in the movies or TV that's American college culture. Um, so to kind of figure out, um, you know, enjoying the clubs, because a lot of the clubs are specific to Lethbridge, you know, the egg culture clubs and the Lions Club and all that and skiing and, you know, they're skiing and stuff. So there's all these different experiences that perhaps they don't won't be able to experience in their home countries. Um, you know, come and join, there's always going to be someone that, you know, is new and maybe didn't sign up with a friend that you could always buddy with. So well, and that really is part of the reason to take international education is to have that experience of living in another culture and another country. Mm -hmm. I've noticed too, like, um, you know, the international students that, you know, come and study here and return home and, you know, that take away the most are the ones that, you know, have an open kind of mindset and are kind of like, I'll just join. So, um, you know, I, I was friends with an international student at the university um, and she she's not Buddhist, but she, you know, joined the um, the Buddhist church here um, in Lethbridge. And that's how she met a lot of, um, you know, the people that she ended up, you know, socializing with and spending a lot of time with after school was through that church, um, you know, and helping out and volunteering. And so that's the other thing. Volunteering is 
you know, in a lot of countries, it might not be a big thing, but here, like there's so many opportunities to volunteer. And for some of the international students, it's hard to find a part-time job. Um, so, you know, volunteering is another way to build up that work experience. It's not paid, unfortunately, but it is a good way. And it's a good way to make connections, especially if they want to work after here, right? So it's a good way to maybe make those uh, work connections as well and contacts, especially in Lethbridge, because we're such a tight-knit community. Someone knows someone that knows someone that could get you something. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's very true. I want to jump back to the beginning of our conference conversation when you talked about your experience in Japan and you mentioned that when you first got there you were an introvert and so that's you know probably like a lot of students that young when they're coming here how did your experience change you from that um for me it was um I was the only one in my group of friends that we that you know the jet friends like we all came from different cultures and we all um usually like the people that you came with in that year you kind of end up being friends with and in that friend group I was the only one that had me and uh myself in a I think two other people had Japanese language backgrounds and we could speak conversational Japanese and we could have basic reading skills um and so we kind of got pushed into kind of the leaders of the group so if we wanted to go you know Okinawa is a bunch of little islands so if we wanted to take you know a ferry to one of the other islands so that we can go snorkeling um you know it always fell onto myself and Brett because we were the ones that took Japanese language classes and could read Japanese and we could figure out like when the fair what the fairs were what the time schedule was or if we went to a restaurant the nice thing about Japan is all their menus have pictures. So you could just literally point to whatever you wanted to eat. But, you know, when it came to like asking for the check or where the bathrooms were, if we could, you know, if someone had an allergy, um, it, it kind of fell to us. And because, you know, I look Japanese, well, I am Japanese. Um, a lot of times the service staff would just kind of look at me expectantly and order. And so that kind of pushed me into it because before I left for Canada, like I couldn't even order pizza on the phone. That's how shy I was. I'd always make my brother do it. I would never do it. on my own. So, um, yeah, just, I was just kind of forced into that position. So it made me like really independent. And so I had to learn, but I'd always like, when I was with my family, I'd always fall back to them. And I think that's just because like, I had to do it with my friends that I just leaned on my, my relatives <laughs> when I was there. Mm -hmm. So you experienced a lot of personal growth through your time there. My first group of students, um, one of them told me that when they, I met them when they were in grade 10. And then when they were graduating grade 12, you we were just, um, I was talking with them at lunch and they're like, oh, Miss Kinjo, like you, you know, when we first met you, we thought you were always mad. We like, we were scared of you. Cause I always had the stern face. Cause I was concentrating so hard. And then there, and like, we thought that you were never happy and you're always angry at us. And now you're just like joking around with us and you give us candy and you're always smiling. You're so approachable. Um, yeah. So that was, and I think teaching too, like teaching kind of forces you to be outgoing which is weird because I know a lot of, I, you know, I'm friends with a lot of teachers and a lot of them are actually introverts, but once they stand in front of a classroom, they become extroverts. So maybe it's her way of, you know, opening ourselves up. GA, it's been wonderful talking to you today and learning about uh, intercultural communication and learning about your role and some of the challenges that uh, international students, uh, international students 
deal with, and especially during the pandemic. As we wrap up the show today, we always like to ask our guest um, if there's something that they have loved learning. We're educators, so we tend to be lifelong learners. We really enjoy doing new things. And so um, this really can be anything from learning to cook something to an instrument or, you know, some kind of recommendation that you have. So I thought long and hard about this question. There's a couple, um, but I noticed especially since we've gone into lockdown and I've started to work from home, um, I've, I've started to cook more um, and trying to be a better cook um, in terms of Japanese food. Um, because I lived in Japan, I never had to cook it. I could just go to the grocery store. They had this great deli and I could just pick up tempura or sushi or sashimi every if I wanted to. It's just there at the grocery store. Um, but that's a little bit different here. You can't do that. You can't go to save on. Well, I guess you can. But, um, you know, just some of the home foods like the stir fries and, um, you know, stuff that you normally have to go to a restaurant to order. So that's what I've been trying to do is learn to be a better Japanese cook <laughs> to kind of keep up with them because I'm trying not to lose all the, the the Japanese part of me that I've you know made and developed and was a, became aware of while I was living in Japan that heritage side of me so yeah I'm trying to learn a better cook and what better way than to do it through food. Are there any um, YouTube channels or particular recipes or how are you uh, learning this? Um, I kind of have an advantage. I go to all the Japanese cooking sites. Um, and so I go to CookPad, which is like, uh, um, it's like, it's a, it's kind of like the Food Network, um, you know, the recipe collection that the Food Network website has. But CookPad is one where, um, you know, you can submit your own recipes um, in Japan. So I use that a lot. So when I want to learn, um, so I was trying to make koroke, which is like a croquette. So it's like mashed potatoes that you bread and, you know, but there's a Japanese version of it. Um, and so I looked up five or different recipes that I, you know, picked the best one mm -hmm. or that I felt like that I could do. So, mm -hmm. oh, that sounds wonderful. That sounds amazing. Um, when the pandemic's over, we'll have to get together and have supper. <laughs> yeah, I make a lot of gyoza too. So I'm always looking at gyoza recipes and. Yeah, all that fun stuff and sushi. We do that a lot. So um, figuring out the right ratio for sushi rice and all that fun stuff. So, well, thank you very much, Chie. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> this episode featured Donna McLaughlin as host and Chie Kinjo as guest. Jude Bialik was our producer. Ryan Robinson was our sound technician and editor. Thank you also to Daryl Benebeck, Joel Godry, Kelsey Jansen, Mike Smith, and Tyler Wall for their ongoing support and expertise. Our podcast is funded by Lethbridge College's Centre for Teaching, Learning and Innovation and recorded on the traditional lands of the Blackfoot Confederacy. For more information and inspiration, check out learninginnovation.ca.